is to discuss meaningful topics and issues from the lens of two Kamarican sisters and other diverse community leaders. Today's topic is Navigating Adversity as a Queer Viet Khmer American with Randy Kim, producer of the Ban Mi Chronicles. Welcome back to the Two Khmerican Sisters. We are Jasmine and Melissa, your co-hosts. And today, we are excited to speak with a very special guest. It is my pleasure to introduce Randy Kim, who is the host, creator, and producer behind the APIA-centered podcast called The Ban Mi Chronicles. He is also the co-host and co-producer of Talk Stories, an Asian-American, Asian diaspora live storytelling show with Dr. Ada Ching. In addition, he serves as a board member with the National Cambodian Heritage Museum. Randy identifies himself as being part of the queer Southeast Asian American, specifically Vietnamese and Khmer communities. Please welcome Randy Kim. Well, hello. Well, thank you so much for having me on today, and congratulations on your uh, on the, uh, the the recent launch of your podcast. So great work on getting that jump start. It's amazing that we're starting to have uh, more Khmer Americans uh, emerge in the uh, podcast platform. Thank you, Randy. And thank you very much. Yeah, it's nice to finally talk to you and not just over direct messages. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, and we're really excited to get to know you better. And thanks for taking the time to be on our podcast today and your willingness to share your personal story with us and yeah. all our listeners. Are you currently located in Chicago, Illinois? Yeah, you know, I'm located in the Chicagoland area. So I currently live outside Chicago. I grew up in West Ma, which is about a good 40 minutes away from the city and then I had lived in Korea for three years from 2009 to 2012 as an English teacher and then I came back uh, right after my mom's stroke and then I had lived in Chicago Rogers Park neighborhood which is up on the north side. I recently moved back to Westmont to my old uh, childhood home uh, because you know both of my parents are disabled and uh, so you know it's uh so they need me to be mm-hmm. more present for them and i'm glad for that and also especially during the time of the pandemic that's so sweet of you to return home and, and take care mm-hmm. of your parents yeah for sure but yeah chicago is a is a unique uh it's a unique place it's a place that i you know consider home to me it's also home of many amazing apia activist folks um the Kamai community is not as large it's it's a lot smaller than say long beach or lowell massachusetts mm-hmm. or philadelphia it's a small but it's a very tight-knit community and we have the cambodian museum which is the only museum that's dedicated to the cambodian mm-hmm. culture and the history of the genocide outside of cambodia to the credit of ada chang who has done storytelling and to our current board members who have come into the museum to bring in a different level of voice, a younger voice to the table. Uh, We had people who have come into our events the past few years saying, this is my first time. And whenever Ada Chang does her storytelling shows, which features different BIPOC storytellers, she would always ask the question, how many of you have been to the museum for the first time? And good 80% people would raise their hands. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done to spread the awareness and the visibility that this museum does exist. And that it's there for a reason. It's there for 
our community is there for our survivors. It's there for those who are no longer there, but need to have their history be told and be followed by subsequent generations. And for folks who aren't even aware uh, about the Khmer American history. I think it is really important for us to, you know, preserve that history and what our parents and grandparents, what they've all went through and and also to educate the younger generation because there are many, you know, young folks out there who are really interested to learn more about the Khmer Rouge and yeah. if they don't have family members opening up then they don't, it's hard for them to it is. figure out what happened. And there's a, a sense yeah. of closure. It, it, it is, it's, it's hard because, he, I mean, even with my own relatives, uh, even with my younger cousins, they're still having these hard, they're having a hard time having that conversation with their own parents about it because their parents are very, uh, are having a very hard time talking about this particular chapter as many refugee parents tend to do. Uh, sometimes, um, there was a book that I read by Helen Zia when she talked about the last boat out of Shanghai, which was about the Nanjing massacre, which happened during the World War II era. And she started interviewing people for about a good 12 year period of the survivors. And, and you know, reading about the Nanjing massacre was horribly, horribly difficult to read through. It felt like a mirror image of the Khmer Rouge. And, mm-hmm. um, and she talked about how her mother at the time when she was like in her 70s and Helen was like 50, uh, her mom all of a sudden decided, and you, have to, and you have to remember, Helen Zia was a journalist for a number of years who was fighting for Vincent Chin's, you know, uh, just for justice for Vincent Chin's murder. And her mom basically came up to her one day and said, uh, do you want to know my story? I'll give you my story. And it was like, it, this, it came out of nowhere, but you, sometimes you never know when, your parents will tell you. Mm-hmm. You could be just cooking a dinner. Next thing you know, <laughs> something is going to trigger them, and you have to be ready for those moments. Doing the podcast, which is uh, when I was doing the second season, which is revolving around the year 1975, we've seen so much of our generations continue to evolve. What's really heartbreaking for me is that any adult survivors who are 20 years old. In 1975 are now 65 years and older and that tells me that they are now re- in retirement age and mm-hmm. we're seeing a lot of our Khmer Vietnam War survivors adult survivors now aging and passing on and we're still trying to get stories and to understand our history and it scares me when um, when younger folks are not able to tap into their history. I'm, I'm very fortunate to have my parents tell me their stories. Um, when I was doing, when I was part of the candlelight visual with the museum and then we were working with Tacoma folks, we were working with Long Beach folks and um, there was a candlelight visual that was going on over in Tacoma that I was watching that Salong Chun, who is an amazing activist, amazing artist. Uh, one person got up on the mic and I might cry if I talk about this, mm. but it always gets me, but she mm-hmm. said, <clears throat> my mother died a few years ago and I'll never be able to learn her story you know i think that's what really inspired my 1975 theme for that second season so that it still haunts me because the the fact that we're um running out of time Mm -hmm. i think we have to have these conversations we have to have these spaces to 
uh, understand our history because we're going to walk around with question marks in our mm -hmm. head if we don't know our history. And I think that there's a there's power to knowing about our past, right? So yeah. Yeah, we want to honor the sacrifices and the violence that our families had to go through. We want to honor their journey, especially when they pass like that. And yeah. through our episode, there were a lot of people who messaged us and said, wow, I don't talk to my families about this. I'm going to try to do that. Yeah. So I think your platform and our platform and anybody else who's encouraging to talk about it, I think it's helping inspire some people. I think it can be, you know, I think that it just opens up dialogue. I mean, mm -hmm. Facebook groups, Instagram, I know for a lot of us second generation folks or 1.5 generation folks, mm -hmm. when worrying about assimilation, when we're worrying about trying to be successful in a country that sees us differently and, mm -hmm. and also in a way uh, we live in this purgatory like where our own parents community does not see us as part of them because right. we don't have the necessary skills or the language ability or um, the cultural understanding and that can be very hard to deal with and especially if you decide to go back or go on a family trip to the family homeland and then be reminded that you're not one of them. That's very hard to deal with. And then when you are, as an American, you're also f having a hard time figuring out like, like where do I really belong here? You know, you're going into spaces that are, that with people that do not look like you. So you're always reminded that you're always not enough or that you mm -hmm. are kind of like othered. And so, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, and I think that as we just talked about, uh, understanding our history is uh, very empowering, and it gives us a better a sense of why we're here, what our purpose is, um, what our past family traumas have been like, because you know, intergenerational trauma is very real among us. So um, understanding what the roots of our parents' pain, our grandparents' pain, or our ancestors, it helps us get a better sense of how do we move forward? How do we break certain cycles of, of our uh, ancestral past? And how do, we, uh, how do we break those chains so it will not affect or harm our upcoming generations. I think that we all have to continue to heal ourselves um, for as long as we're still living. And, I, and it's, a, it's a continual process. And I think that's how we become better as individuals to do important work and to advance our history. I think it helps you develop just better empathy for people who are going through struggles and challenges. What you mentioned in the feature that you submitted um, for our website, and thank you, by the way, for supporting and sharing your voice. Um, so it's what you mentioned about belonging, which is an ongoing question that we ask ourselves when we live in that diaspora, and that our strength comes from when we no longer live our life to make others comfortable. And we're just curious to know what particular instances in your life where you have faced discomfort and mm. you know, how did you come out of those challenging experiences? Ooh, wow. I feel like I'm going to be sitting in that, uh, the psychologist chair here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that there were, gosh, I mean, definitely anywhere in my child, any point in my childhood was certainly uh, a very uncomfortable experience because, you know, being both 
born as Khmer and Vietnamese was a challenge. And then living in a predominantly white neighborhood where your cultures were not understood um, and that you spend most of your life, your childhood through adult life trying to fit in uh, with your school, with your neighborhood, and also with your parents' communities and your family. Mm-hmm. So I always felt like I was kind of a square peg in a round hole practically everywhere else. And, you know, not having that kind of support, um, not having uh, an older mentor, um, having people I could really look up to. Um, you know, I'm the oldest of three, and it felt really hard as a shy kid to navigate things on my own uh, for the first time, not having the blueprint of applying for college. School events, it's very foreign to them. So Mm -hmm. it felt like, it felt embarrassing, you know, like they didn't, that they did not know this. It felt embarrassing for me because I don't want my classmates or my friends to know about. So I kept my life very private. I only had very few friends, you know, growing up and uh, the ones that were closest to me were the ones that actually got to see my parents because I did not want anyone to notice anything that's very foreign, that's very mm-hmm. different about me. So yeah, I felt, um, I, I definitely felt that str- struggle to belong anywhere else. And no matter how hard I tried to disguise that or try to minimize it, it felt like I was always in hiding. Once I had gotten away from Westmont, uh, I started realizing that there were different communities uh, going to UIC, which is the University of Illinois in Chicago. It was prompt, it was fairly diverse, so that started to kind of break some uh, break some of that for me. I think it was really wasn't until I left for Korea uh, right after the economic recession, and I got into the uh, teaching program. And not only was I in an Asian country, obviously, but I was around other Asian expat teachers, uh, um, whether they're from Australia, from England, or from Dallas or California. I actually felt for the first time I was around groups of other Asian Americans, which I had not uh, been around for the first 25 years of my life. So it felt like, yeah, I was around other Asian people, but the problem was that that around my dad's communities, it was always comparisons. It was about, mm-hmm. oh, this kid got straight A's. What yeah. about you? So oh, I, it, it got me away. <laughs> we oh, definitely it's, experienced that growing yeah, up. Too. It's painful, right? It's a yeah. very, it's traumatic. You have to live up to their expectations. And you Living up to their expectations. And the fact that, you're, that, that your desire for love has to come from your success. And when you fail at it, you don't deserve to be loved. And that's a mm-hmm. powerful, that's a very, that had a lot of effect on me, mm-hmm. my desire or my my fears of being loved because I felt like it had to be attached to, to uh, my efforts, right. to my, um, my efforts to prove like that I'm A's. worthy. Yes, yeah. yes, that I'm that I'm that I'm worthy of a person's love. You know, mm-hmm. based on how smart I am. When I would eventually come back to Chicago, that I really need to be around Asian community members, but more specifically with LGBTQ Asian folks, which 
back then I was not I was not fully out but then you know having that community helped to go even further about mm -hmm. my own intersectional mm -hmm. queer API identity and we wanted to just better understand the queer community which is as you mentioned mm -hmm. the community that you identify with and I feel like I guess it's a term that not many people know of because mm -hmm. um, we've heard of LGBT. So what does it really mean to be queer? I think queer can mean obviously more than one single narrative for me. Um, I identify more closely as a being a gay person, but I also, I guess there's fluidity, but there's also a political side to being queer as well in terms of how I feel about my own gender, how I feel like nothing is ever completely binary for me. Mm -hmm. uh, how I view sexuality might like yes I may be uh, predominantly in love with cis men or be with cis men or attracted to cis men yet at the same time I could also be attracted to someone who's trans man who's a trans uh, person or non-binary so I think part of the idea of queer is that it, it has more fluidity in that term I think for me I, I, I like to have something that has more of a flexibility that's not mm -hmm. pigeonhole that's not mm -hmm. pigeonholing it into one box here yeah yeah it sounds yes. like it's more inclusive yeah i was yes. going to say that the labels make it boxed in like you are this right. thing but it's important for people to feel to have freedom with their sexuality and the way they appear the way they dress yeah and we're curious to know what has your journey been like being queer um, how did your family respond to that and friends? How did you gain confidence in yourself during this time? As I mentioned, like growing up in Westmont in a predominantly white neighborhood uh, outside of Chicago, when I grew up, um, I'm 37 years old now to give you a better context. And as a kid, the AIDS, HIV era was very loud and visible. And also mm -hmm. the stigma was very severe too. Uh, I remember the Ryan White case. I remember how he got ostracized in Indiana um, and he was accused of being gay and, and he was just a kid. And, you know, um, I would definitely look him up if you have a chance, but, you know, hearing his story was very tragic. Um, and then uh, hearing about uh, what happened to Matthew Shepard, who was a white gay man who was murdered uh, in Colorado as a hate crime. And those moments also brought out the ugly side of my community's reaction towards their deaths. And that's something I never forgot. Uh, I remembered when I was in English class and the English teacher decided to ask about what their thoughts were on Matthew Shepard's killing. And I was a sophomore in, in high school. And one of the students said some very visceral things like he deserved to die and other students started agreeing. Oh, yeah. So, and as a person who was trying to figure out my own sexuality, it was painful for me to hear that. Um, but it was also even more painful dealing with my own family's fear of me becoming gay. Mm -hmm. And and they always say that your mom always tends to get an idea get a hint of their own son's sexuality. Mm -hmm. Well, she had worried about me, you know, back in when I was 14 years old, and I wasn't exactly sure how to answer to that because uh, when I thought of the definition of what gay meant or queer meant, it did not, it felt like 
the term was used for people who are not normal. And that was a very big deal for me. Uh, it had an effect on me because I felt I wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like everyone else. I wanted to be uh, desired to be loved. And and also it didn't help that many girls were not attracted to me back then. So, I mean, uh, so I felt like I was not seen as worthy and and the idea of me being gay felt really terrifying uh, for a really long time. So yeah, I think through high school, I felt like I had to play off, normalize myself, but that also meant internalizing my own homophobia. Mm -hmm. uh, I think through college, it was still hard. Like I, I did not find many people that I could confide in um, let alone in the Asian community that was also out. Um, and then my best friend who uh, came out to me as being gay, he was a white man. And I think that I was resentful of him for a time. When I look back on that experience, I was very resentful that he had privileged. I was resentful that his parents were more accepting of it mm -hmm. than I was. So I felt, and also he had a boyfriend at the time, which mm -hmm. who I did not like at the time. And I felt like I could not have the kind of happiness or the acceptance that he already had, that it did not feel like it was much of an effort compared to what I had to deal with. Then as I was starting to come out, I got accepted into Korea. Korea mm -hmm. is, has, a, has a very strong anti homosexual stance or anti-LGBTQ stance and I was teaching at an all-boys middle school so I felt like I had to come right back into the closet for the next three years so that's exhausting yeah it was exhausting yeah and I think it wasn't until I you know came back to Chicago and I was with an Asian LGBTQ group called I2I that finally you know I was in a community where it made sense for me and and as far as my family is concerned you know my mom is aware about it and she's fine with it. Although we don't talk about it as often, it doesn't get brought up. I think there's times when she hopes that I would break out of it, but you know, I told her that it's not going to happen anytime soon, mom. Good for you. And my brothers, you know, at first, you know, they were really uncomfortable with the idea of that. They thought it would be better if I didn't talk about it. And then a few years ago, they were much more open about it. One of my brothers actually uh, was the one that helped make it easier for me to have that conversation with my mom it's a tough situation because my dad has mental health issues so you know i usually don't bother with it thank you so much for sharing your story and i was excited to see that on your bio you said i'm queer you know like yeah. flat out this is what i am and yeah. i find it interesting to learn about everyone's journey up until they come out and i just wish that people could be more accepting because how you feel is how you feel. Like, what do you expect mm. someone to do? And if you expect <laughs> them to be a certain way, like, it's, yeah, yeah. people shouldn't live like that. You know, I, I, there's a person that I definitely want to shout out, and I know I've given her credit for this, but when I was with I2I, there was a potluck party for a friend of ours at the beach back in 2013. And my friend Lek comes up to me and she introduces herself. She's Khmer American. And she was like, you know, I'm queer and I don't care what those others think. And I'm like, who are you? And I want to get to know who you are. And, I, yeah. and, and that actually, she was the reason why I started to have an interest in coming back to the Kamai community okay. um, because she made it possible 
that a person like her, as a woman, as a queer woman, and a very loud person at that, um, would dare stand up to those elders because she grew up in that community mm-hmm. in her entire life and knew the elders left and right. And that gave me the confidence to be like, okay, if she can do it, then I can do it. So um, many love to her because that opened up to, I would not be in this position. I would not be having this conversation with you or I would not be a board member with the museum. Who knows mm-hmm. if had I not met Lex. So I'm, I'm very grateful for her own unapologetic fierceness. <laughs> I love it. And that actually would encourage me to, uh, to go into the community and, you know, and I keep thinking to myself, I want to be that kind of person for other folks mm-hmm. too. Well, I commend you for standing up for yourself and having the courage to break that stereotype. It takes a lot of effort. Yeah. I noticed from your bio that you had an amazing experience in Korea. And it sounded like you left everything here and you went over there. (laughs) And we're interested to know about how it was like to live abroad. Um, You shared a little bit about the experience. um, Yeah. And I'm interested to know more. I know you're a big k-pop oh, I, that. <laughs> I, I know that's the reason why i know I that's the reason why <laughs> no, I, it in. In high, no i was gonna say that in high school yeah i got in, into k-pop and then i really looked up like teaching in korea and i thought oh, wow. wow wouldn't that be great if i did that because they would pay for like your your house <laughs> <laughs> oh the good old times i miss yeah. the good old days Those but yeah were... how was it like teaching God, and volunteering know. and um, what yeah. do you have to make? Gosh, I have to. Gosh, because it's been like over a decade. It's been a little over a decade now because I left in 2009. And it was right during the uh, time of the economic crisis. And, you know, I was going into journalism. I, I was, at first I was going into Ooh, secondary education. Yeah, I was going to go into secondary education and realized oh, I don't really want to be a high school teacher in America. And then I decided, <laughs> you know, I really want to go into journalism. This was always been my passion. But then, you know, after my internship with uh, what was then Comcast Sports, which is now NBC Sports Chicago, I struggled uh, to find work. You know, being an Asian person trying to break out into that industry was super difficult and very microaggressive too because, okay. you know, going through all that was when you're in a sea of upper class white people and I'm the only Asian person who comes from a refugee family, there's already a disconnect there. So, um, and then the economy collapsed. So all the places I was trying to apply to, I just could not break in at all uh, for the next year. And I felt really defeated. Um, And then there was the idea originally of teaching abroad. I think it was a, my friend Karen uh, one day. I was very depressed. I was crying on the phone and I was like, I, 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 I don't know what to do. I'm, I feel like a loser. And, and then I, uh, she actually uh, allowed me to stay at her place over like near uptown and to get, a, to get my head for a few days. And when she came back, we had dinner. She talked about how she taught in Japan. And then, you know, later that night, I was like, huh. This is very interesting. Um, this sounds kind of unique. And then I thought about looking into Vietnam because that was a place I had not been to, but I also felt like I, maybe I need to kind of get in touch with my roots. And and then I found out that they had a preference to hire white people as teachers, oh, as English teachers. Yeah. Yes. 
there was that and also i think that there was a lot of bias towards hiring vietnamese americans because i mm. part of me thinks because at the end of the vietnam war that they saw the folks who left as traitors oh. so i think that also had to do it i don't know if that's exactly the real reason behind it but I can't help but feel that the history somehow intersects that, mm-hmm. it still carries that. Uh, so I was like, oh gosh, I don't think I'm gonna be able to get into Vietnam. And then one of the recruiters suggested um, Korea and he started giving me this pitch about, you know, this is kind of fairly new. Um, the government program was doing, was looking to hire a number of expat teachers. And I was like, okay, this is very interesting. There's, you know, uh free housing um the salary felt really nice i had not been out of the country i had not traveled alone wow Wait, was that and i first felt time? like yeah, that was his first time i think oh my goodness yeah yeah it's, <laughs> it was my first time and people my family members and my close friends are like looking at me like okay are you sure you're able to do this and, <laughs> yeah. and i think I that know. i think their doubt like really fueled me even more oh, and i was great. like you know what yeah it's like you know what screw you guys it's like for not believing me and i felt like this like i've already been getting rejected left and right i've already i've had and also because like like what next am i going to work as an administrative assistant for for, in my 20s like no i i feel like at this point i need to have an adventure i need to do something for myself so Mm -hmm. i did uh go i did take that chance to live in uh, busan south korea yeah you know for those three years i learned how to feel independent i learned to have courage in traveling on my own to navigate and talking with locals or communicating with locals whatever way i can because i couldn't really speak korean very well i still keep in touch with some of my students um there are now uh-huh. it's kind of crazy for me to say this but the oldest group is 26 years old oh that's hard for me to believe because I was the same age that I was already their teacher. So it's like, and I had one of them actually um, was on a business trip before the pandemic hit, but he actually visited um, Chicago on a business trip because he was working for LG and I was so happy to see him. I mean, mm-hmm. I was like, oh, this is so cool. It's like, I get to finally see one of my former students. He's already now in his career and, you know, he's in his mid twenties really now, which yeah and then he and he was very shocked that the waitress asked for my id which is <laughs> great i'm glad that i am seen that way so but uh it also led me to a lot of wonderful friendships and and it really changed uh the trajectory of my life moving forward i'm really glad that you took that step to get out of your comfort zone and just yes. immerse yourself in a different journey I'm sure you've learned a lot from that and that it's just really inspiring that you just left, you know, and just decided to do that for yourself. Yeah, I think coming back out of it really gave me a a sense of who I want my community to be and who am I going to go after? What, where do I belong or where, or what kind of space do I deserve to be in? Um, So we wanted to learn more about the National Cambodian Heritage Museum and the the Killing Fields Memorial. What are some Mm -hmm. uh, cultural artifacts and stories? that you'd like to share? We also have our healing arts program and uh, it's also coordinated by our very own uh, Bonisa Bov. Uh, Bonisa is our resident artist musician. So there's <gasps> dance classes, there's Ooh. music classes and she is a phenomenal 
uh, musician, singer. Um, she also has her own YouTube channel too. Oh, um, she wow, also knows how to cook. Oh yeah, she knows how to cook oh, up we'll, a good we'll meal. Be sure too. to check it out. <laughs> she's she's basically our our diamond uh, of the museum. I mean, she she has really brought so much of her history through music and dance and uh, performance. Uh, so there, so we do have our music programs. Uh, Ada Cheng, who is a Taiwanese-American, uh, I knew her through the storytelling scene, so I decided to bring her uh, to the museum to be our partner, and so she brought in storytelling shows to the museum, which happens usually quarterly. There's going to be a storytelling show called Speaking Truth, which is going to feature several uh, storytellers sharing their own personal journey. I'll be co-producing with her for talk stories and the Cambodian Museum is going to be partnered up with the the Japanese American Services Committee and the Chinese American Museum in Chicago. So they're going to be done virtually. So they will be done virtually. So that's the good news. So you'll get to, you know, experience those shows. Uh, So it's going to be through Zoom and uh, yeah you're gonna hear a lot of uh, wonderful stories of community folks and that's part of what the museum is now proud to be bringing wow a lot of exciting events coming up we're happy to support you any way we can so randy uh, our next question is what does it mean to you to be a queer Viet Khmer american i guess to sum up the experience of being a queer Viet Khmer american i will say this uh for the longest time i saw these identities as a burden. Then I would see these identities as a continuing process. More importantly, I see them as a gift. To go through the pain, the trauma of these identities, the rejection from your family, community members, the neighborhood that you grew up in uh, was especially painful. And it's something that never leaves you. To this day, sometimes I often uh, question whether I'm still worthy. And that's something that I still fight with. While at the same time, I've also began to realize how many people in my community, especially around my age and younger, have evolved and continuing to shape up these new narratives that have that are now emerging, that have been silent for so long, but now have a voice. And I take inspiration from that. I take inspiration that people who have been marginalized and silenced uh, from outsiders and from within their own community are reclaiming themselves. And that is powerful. And so when I see myself reclaiming my identity, taking joy in my own identities on my own terms, there's power to that. I realized that those identities are not something that I hate anymore, but that I have embraced, that I have come to love, that I have come to see as invaluable and as an opportunity for me to foster deeper connections with other community members who uh, share some of the uh, similar journeys and different uh, paths my identities as a queer Khmer Vietnamese American, now it's an absolute gift and it's a gift that I cherish. And I want to say that I completely embrace it. That was beautifully articulated. And thank you, Randy, for sharing what it means to be living in these multiple identities. I think this will resonate with so many people and we appreciate you for being 
vulnerable today and being brave enough to share your personal stories with us. And we're coming to a close. And our last question is a chance for you to promote your work, your podcast, um, any final words of inspiration, anything that you'd want to share with our listeners. I'm currently working on the third season of the Bun Me Chronicles podcast. Uh, the Bun Me Chronicles podcast is an API-centered uh, podcast. It's The concept is breaking Bun Me, which is breaking bread with other community folks at the APIA identities. And, and I've been interviewing folks from Chicago to nationally on stories about their upbringing, assimilation, second generation issues, and community empowerment to civic engagement. So I will be on my one year anniversary in October and finishing the third Ooh, season. Congratulations. That's coming up. Yeah. The, yeah, what a blessing it has been. It's going to be very hard because like comparing episodes is like comparing which child is your favorite like every episode is like my baby the third season is themed where do we stand and what does that mean it is talking with community members on issues of anti-asian racism in the wake of COVID-19 to anti-blackness and colorism in our own community in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor's murder and also the upcoming election and how to talk about these things in a more interconnected uh, personal way. So I've had a number of amazing guests, Kathy Park Hong, who wrote Minor Feelings in Asian American Reckoning. You need to read that book. It is a phenomenal read. Uh, Michelle Kim, who leads DEI initiatives, among others. There's there's going to be a few spoiler alerts, but uh, keep an eye on that. Um, as far as talk stories, you can follow us on Talk Stories in Asian American, Asian Diaspora Storytelling Show on Facebook. And you can also follow me at the bun me on instagram at bun me underscore chronicles and you can find my page the bun me chronicles on facebook uh feel free to follow me there um you'll see upcoming episodes and sometimes i'll have my own little political commentary every now and then social commentaries and food pics so um that'll be kind of cool if you ever need to check me out there and uh what advice would i have you know ada who has been my mentor for the past few years, she, after one of our talk stories show, she comes up to me and says, Randy, I need you to do an independent project. You really need to start doing things on your own now. And she said, I don't mentor you so I can stay, so that you can be working for me or that I can keep you. I mentor you so that you can learn how to fly on your own. That was powerful for me because I had never been told that and also because I've always distrusted myself to do anything that's independent. I never thought I was committed to anything long term and then she also was the one to help push me to go to grad school so I think I think what I can say is that uh, sometimes you just have to whether you're scared or not um, go for it because no one is going to tell you to say you can't do this and what's stopping you is your own insecurities. You have to be comfortable making the mistakes, pissing off people along the way, but also be open to unlearning and be open to being receptive to feedback because you need to have these moments in order for you to grow and to be better at it. So I encourage everyone to use your voice, be okay with making mistakes, and learn when you can, and trust yourself that you will get better. Wow. I thank know, you, Randy. So <laughs> it yeah, came full circle. You. 
You and are such an inspiration. <laughs> yeah. And we're lucky that we got to connect with you and learn about your stories today. And this is the beginning of our connection. So um, we're excited to see what you do and good luck in grad school. Too. I know. <laughs> Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts about this episode. Be sure to give us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts. Your feedback is always appreciated. And we'll go ahead and link Randy's information in our show notes. Follow us on IG for more awesome content and updates on upcoming episodes. Catch you all next time. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Welcome.